Yeah, uh, so there are a couple of areas where I was feeling that sense of suffering uh, most. One was in the uncertainty I was feeling in my marriage. And the other was the sense of uncertainty I was feeling with regards to existential questions. What I was trying to do was find a, a ground of certainty again. I had it at one point. I had this sense of certainty in my beliefs, that I had the right beliefs, that they were the only right ones. Um, I had that sense of certainty at some point, for some, for some time in my marriage, with this is my eternal companion, or this is my... You know, there was a lot of sense of certainty that, sure, it can be rocky, but it, this is a... This is all, you know, an eternal thing that's happening. And, and that gave me a level of comfort. But when the ground kind of shook and, and a couple of pieces shifted that made me question whether or not there was certainty in that, it was really difficult. Suddenly I found myself kind of falling uh, in, in that sense of a free fall where there was no solid ground, there was nothing that I could just rely on as, as a certain thing anymore. And the more I fell, the more I wanted to stop the fall. I wanted there to be some kind of a, a saving parachute, you know, that would say, it's all going to be okay. And I, I, I wasn't finding it, and I, I kind of went into this searching mode, the seeking, seeking security. So one of the things that happened first was I started questioning my own beliefs, thinking, well, what if this isn't what, what I always thought it was, or how would I even know if that sense of feeling this is true, how do I know something is true? Like I started to get stuck in that philosophical mind. And, um, Buddhism doesn't really have answers to these questions. They're going to flip it on you and say, why do you want to know? Why do you want to know? I had never encountered that line of thought where I was like, yeah, why do I want to know? One was in the uncertainty of this feeling in my marriage. myself kind of falling. And the other was the sense of existential questions. Regardless of what the answer could be, if you can unlock the real question, which is, which is why do I feel the need to know, then the answer doesn't matter because you understand yourself and the source of the question. And, and ironically, in that quest, I finally found what I was looking for, which was just peace, peace with the uncertainty. With the uncertainty. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. Philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. After your faith has let you down. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones, the podcast about self-reflection and self-discovery from a bunch of recovering former Mormons. I'm Glenn Ostland, and today I am thrilled to give you the first part of a two-part interview that I did with Noah Rachetta. Now, Noah runs a podcast called Secular Buddhism, and he's no stranger to Infants on Thrones. He gave a live presentation 
to the Nautilus Group in Mesa, Arizona back in November 2016, and that was published as episode 323 of Infants on Thrones. Noah's sister-in-law, Anessa, has been on a handful of past episodes representing issues like the ERA and other causes that she loves, and her husband, Noah's twin brother, Nick, is our infant Scott's paramotoring buddy, and so is Noah, for that matter. And if you haven't checked out what Nick films and publishes from his paramotoring flights, check out his YouTube channel. It's Nick Rashetta, N-I-K-R-A-S-H-E-T-A, Nick Rashetta on YouTube. It's amazing. And of course, so is his twin brother, Noah, who recently published a book called No Nonsense Buddhism for Beginners. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in part one of my discussion with Noah, after this brief moment of Zen. When I was in school sometime, when I came across the sign saying, Who are you and where are you from? We don't let business come. Who knows that master said, Who can work me? Who knows that my ass wiggled low me? Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? I can. Awesome. Let me switch this camera. Wow, you even sound like Nick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. We can still trick my parents. Really? Yeah, if one of us gets on the phone, usually what we'll do is Nick and I will be talking, and then if my parents start calling, uh, like a three-way or something, we'll get on the phone and trick them. That's funny. Um, cool. Well, yeah, thanks for the invite. Oh, you bet. Yeah, so I, I saw um, just from Nick's post on Facebook that you had this book, and I've recently, do you know Alan Watts? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've recently just been devouring Alan Watts and just love what he says about Buddhism. And I, you know, I mean, I've spent so much, I don't know if you know much about my background, but I did my mission in Japan and then I lived in Tokyo for three and a half years cool. uh, from 2007 to 2010 and um, have been really influenced by Buddhism in a lot of peripheral ways and always been interested in it. I took a a religion, like a world religion class when I was at BYU. And this was probably back in 1994, 95. And I thought, you know, I'm at BYU. I thought, oh, world religion class, this is just going to be about, you know, how they all have different pieces of Mormonism, but not the whole picture. And <laughs> we'll, sh we'll show you what the whole picture is. It wasn't like that at all. It was a, it was a great class. And the things that it talked about Buddhism and the, uh, is it the four fold truth and then the four noble truth old path is that's the fourth one right i don't know yeah. i always get them mixed yeah, up i know there's something like that part of the fourth noble truth yeah yeah the eightfold path yeah and i just thought okay that's that's cool so when i saw that that uh you had a book out on it i thought that is cool and uh i'm so envious isn't the right word but uh I'd, I'd love to do a book, to write a book. I, I love that you wrote a book. And so I want to hear more about what that process was like and just your, your journey into Buddhism and what it means for you, how it's changed your life, what your podcast has done as, as you've impacted other people who are interested in it and uh, just have that discussion with you here today. So awesome. maybe, maybe the, the first question, uh, you know, in your book, um, you mentioned that you were going through a time where you had a lot of, you were suffering. There, there was a lot of suffering um, in your life and you were trying to eliminate that suffering. And 
the more you tried to eliminate it, the more suffering you created. <laughs> so maybe that could be a place where we could start. You could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, uh, I think there, so there are a couple of areas where I was feeling that sense of suffering uh, most. One was in the uncertainty I was feeling in my marriage, mm-hmm. in my relationship. And the other was the sense of uncertainty I was feeling with regards to existential questions. Yeah. Uh, they kind of coincided and, and overlapped uh, at that phase of my life. And um, what I was trying to do was find uh, a ground of certainty again. I had, I had it at one point. I had this sense of certainty in my beliefs that I had the right beliefs, that they were the only right ones. Yeah. Um, I had that sense of certainty at some point for some, for some time in my marriage with this is my eternal companion or this is my, you know, there was a lot of sense of certainty that sure it can be rocky, but it, this is a, this is a, you know, an eternal thing that's happening. And, and it's all going to work out in the end. Yeah. Forever. And I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that gave me a, a level of comfort. Um, but when the ground kind of shook and, and a couple of pieces shifted that made me question the um, whether or not there was certainty in that, um, it was really difficult. Suddenly, I found myself kind of falling uh, in, in that sense of a free fall where there was no solid ground. There was nothing that I could just rely on as as a certain thing anymore. And the more I fell, the more I wanted to stop the fall. I wanted there to be some kind of a, a saving parachute, you know, that would say it's all going to be okay. And I, I I wasn't finding it. And I, I kind of went into this um, searching mode, this seeking, seeking security. And uh, so one of the things that happened first was I started questioning my own beliefs thinking, well, what if this isn't what, what I always thought it was, or how would I even know if that sense of, of feeling this is true, how do I know something is true? Like I started to get stuck in that philosophical mind. Yeah. And um, so I, I got the idea to attend a world religion seminar. Cause at the time I still felt like the answer's out there. I just need to find it. Mm. And it was, it was like, it, it was the world's or the answers to life's questions as presented from the, five major world religions. So it was Christianity, uh, Islam, Judaism, and then the Hinduism and Buddhism. So I'm listening to all these lectures and all of them kind of presenting. You attended this in person? Uh, No, it was on um, uh, the great lecture series or the great courses. Okay. Has like a a, a long lecture series. That's what it's called. uh, Mm. The meaning of life or something like that. Um, so the original lecture did happen at a university. It was all recorded in the, the great courses, put this out. Um, so I'm listening to each of these lecture series presenting, you know, the answers to the big questions. Who, who am I? Why am I here? What happens when I die, essentially? And you get the, the answer from several of these traditions. And I'm evaluating all of these answers to my own views at the time, thinking mm-hmm. ah, that, that doesn't add up or this doesn't make sense. But when uh, the last series was on Buddhism, and I didn't know a whole lot about Buddhism at the time other than you'd hear quotes from people like the Dalai Lama, and it's like, ooh, I like that quote. Mm -hmm. That was about the extent of of my knowledge. 
Um, but it presented this radical concept, which was the presenter said, okay, now we're going to talk about Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't really have answers to these questions. They're going to flip it on you and say, why do you want to know? Or who, <laughs> yeah. who wants to know? Yeah. Who, who is and, the you that wants to know? Yeah. And yeah, that was, right. I, I had never encountered that line of thought where I was like, yeah, why do I want to know? And the, the whole lecture series was kind of saying, regardless of what the answer could be, if you can unlock the real question, which is, which is why do I feel the need to know, then the answer doesn't matter because you understand yourself and the source of the question. Mm. And that concept of, of exploring the question rather than looking for the answer, uh, was, that was my start with Buddhism. I became fascinated with that line of thinking, that philosophy. And I thought, that's what I want. I want to explore the questions, not look for the answers anymore. And that's what kind of led me down that path of, of exploring Buddhism and, and really just devouring books, Alan Watts, uh, uh, anyone. I was just taking any book I could and devouring it. Um, and, and, and ironically, in that quest, I finally found what I was looking for, which was just peace with the uncertainty. Right. Knowing, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen in my marriage. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's going to happen when I die. I don't. And suddenly I was okay with not knowing. So I never got the answer, but I did get the peace I was looking for. Which is this uh, like strange, uh, it, it's a strange type of certainty that like the one thing that you can rely on is that there is no certainty, you know, like you can't rely on anything like that's, yeah. the, that's the single constant, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, um, it, it sounds like you, you had said that you were looking for some kind of a parachute that would be that certainty. And instead, um, j just to try and play with that analogy a little bit more, you, you, uh, realize you didn't need a parachute, that you're perpetually falling and there's some, some sensations that you can experience with the fall. And sometimes it's going to be scary. Sometimes it's going to be fun, but just enjoy the sensations. Would that be a, a good way to, to carry that analogy through? Yeah. Um, this, this notion uh, of the fall uh, comes from uh, Alan Watts. He talks about how it's like you're at the edge of this precipice and then suddenly without warning, you're thrown off of it. And while you're falling, you're in panic mode and you, you turn and you realize this rock was, you know, fell at the same time you did. So you grasp the rock and you're hanging, hanging on for dear life, but it's a, it's a never ending fall. At some point you realize holding on to this stone isn't doing anything for me. And you let go of that rock or, or, or that whatever item was falling next to you. And it's still there. It's just, they're falling, but you're still falling. It doesn't change anything. And that's kind of the, the experience I had, I was the rock I was holding on to was this notion that there is an answer that explains mm -hmm. why I'm falling. And what I ended up with was letting go of that and realizing, well, I'm still just falling, but now I'm okay with it. Cause I understand that's, that's the, uh, that's the game, right? You're, you're mm -hmm. falling and you can't stop that. Noah mentions the game here. Um, I don't know exactly what he meant when he said game, but I'll tell you what it made me think. It made me think about uh, something that Alan Watts has talked about in several of his lectures, which is the game of hide and seek. And uh, the, the game of hide and seek is a way of viewing the world 
that's very different from the Western view of a monarchical God-man in the sky. It's this idea that um, God is everything and everyone and all of us are God in disguise, playing a game of hide-and-seek. Because we're bored. <laughs> I'll, I'll let Alan Watts explain it. So then, here's the drama. My metaphysics, let me be perfectly frank with you, are that there is the central self. You can call it God. You can call it anything you like. And it's all of us. It's playing all the parts of all beings whatsoever, everywhere and anywhere. And it's playing the game of hide-and-seek with itself. It gets lost, it gets involved in the farthest-out adventures, but in the end, it always wakes up and comes back to itself. And when you're ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. In other words, the sense of guilt that one has, or the sense of anxiety, is simply the way one experiences keeping the game of disguise going on. Do you see that? Supposing you say, I feel guilty. Christianity makes you feel guilty for existing. I remember as a child when we went to the services of the church on Good Friday. They gave us each a colored postcard with Jesus crucified on it. And it said underneath, this have I done for thee. What doest thou for me? You know, you fell off. You nailed that man to the cross. But that sense, that sense of guilt is the veil across the sanctuary. Don't you dare come in. Because this is, you are saying to yourself, I won't wake up until I feel I deserve it. I won't wake up until I've made it difficult for me to wake up. So I, I, I invent for myself an elaborate system of delaying my waking up. I put myself through this test and that test, and when I feel it's been sufficiently arduous, then I may at last admit to myself who I really am and draw aside the veil and realize that after all, when all is said and done, I am that I am, which is the name of God. And when it comes to it, that's really rather funny. They say in Zen, when you attain Satori, nothing is left to you at that moment but to have a good laugh. And what I, what I really like about this, going into this with eyes wide open, that it's, it's a fiction. It's a, it's a fictional way of viewing the world. I have no misconceptions that I can actually understand what reality is. <laughs> but... Um, if, if I think about the world this way, if I think when I meet you that you are another version of me, it really does make um, me feel less anxious, less angry, less hurt, more understanding. Um, so I, I like this. I've been kind of exploring uh, how does it feel to think of existence as a big game of hide-and-seek. And uh, I don't know, still trying it out. It's, it's been pretty good. But let's get back to the conversation with Noah.
And what I ended up with was letting go of that and realizing, well, I'm still just falling, but now I'm okay with it because I understand that's that's the uh, that's the game, right? You're, you're mm-hmm. falling, and you can't stop that. Yeah, and, and and in this searching and and finding of inner peace, what was the impact then on th- these other two areas that had kind of created the suffering in the first place? It was the the marriage, and then the faith crisis. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so with the marriage, it was actually quite a profound change because the moment I let go of having an expectation of how it should be, um, that was the ironic twist in the game was it can be whatever it is. If it's going to last, it's going to last. If it's not, it's not. And that was the freedom that our marriage needed to survive. It was, you know, I had a death grip on how it should be. And the moment I let go of that and finally gave both of us permission to like, who knows where this goes. All I know is that today it's working and tomorrow it might not, but today I'm happy and today it's good. Suddenly it started thriving because there was so much, uh, flexible, so much freedom in allowing it to be what it was. And I found myself going into this new strategy in my marriage of, of trying to, fall in love all over again every day. Like, okay, Mm. now today's a new day. Who's this person? Who am I? Or how do we make it work? Are we compatible? What can I do? You know, and that uh, flexibility really saved it. I I had been stuck for a while in that, uh, that fear of, well, I'm not who she married. She's not who I married. Why would she want to be with me now? And uh, you know, that whole thinking kind of, morphed into, well, yeah, of course I'm not the same. And of course she's not the same. And we get to start over every day in this partnership of, Hey, wake up today. Here's the new, this is our partnership. Do, how do we want to make this the best possible partnership? And it really started to heal um, a lot of the aspects of the marriage that at the time seemed unfixable or Mm -hmm. unhealable. And here we were years after now, um, finding that it's, it's been, it's better than it's ever been. Uh, and I think a big part of that is because of that fluidity of, uh, we're just figuring it out every day and not holding on to how it should be. Yeah. And then with the, with the faith crisis, it was similar. Um, the journey shifted. I, I, I went from a faith journey of looking for answers to an introspective journey of understanding the questions. Mm-hmm. And I found a lot of peace in that because all of the conflicting answers to life's questions that you find out there in the various religious traditions or, or non-religious traditions uh, no longer had any bearing. They weren't competing against each other because it was no longer about the answers. All I cared to understand was the source of the questions. What's driving new. those questions. Yeah. 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 That's cool. I like that. Did you ever go through an angry phase when you were leaving the church? Yeah. I have a hard time picturing you and Nick, you know, just, just from what I know of Nick, like ever really being all that angry anyway. <laughs> but but uh, d- did you? You did? I did, yeah. So my, my angry stage lasted, I don't know, maybe a year or mm-hmm. two. Um, but uh, so I've always been the type who likes to avoid confrontation. So I was mm-hmm. never vocal with my anger. Um, which I think aggravated it because I was angry about being angry. Mm. I didn't, I, I'm not a naturally angry person. So it bothered me that suddenly this emotion was thrust on me. And um, 
it, it made it worse. So I spent a good amount of time being angry about being angry. So suddenly I find myself going through this uh, acceptance of the anger mm-hmm. and, and for the first time uh, allow, realizing it's okay to be angry. So, so what? It's just an emotion. Yeah. And by sitting with these emotions, uh, I was able to befriend them and, and to understand them. I could see the source of my anger and, and I had compassion for myself feeling anger rather than being angry at myself for being angry. And that was a very healing process. So that whole anger phase for me um, was, was um, very internal. Uh, there wasn't a lot of outward manifestation of the anger. Uh, fortunately, you know, it didn't, I didn't burn any bridges with friends or family members because I didn't vocalize a lot of it during that stage. Um, I, I did reach out to one person at the time and that was my, my twin brother. Mm-hmm. And that's the only person I confided in. I, I didn't, I couldn't talk to my wife about it cause it was uh, a very emotionally driven topic. Yeah. Um, but I confided in Nick and I shared a lot with him and he would bounce ideas back and allow me to process what I was feeling. And uh, so there was absolutely an angry phase um, and, but it wasn't a very visible phase. Okay. Cool. All right. Let's, let's uh, shift a little bit and talk about the Buddha and the, the historical Buddha. Um, and, uh, you know, for, how, do you, how do you begin this when you're talking to people who don't really have much of a background in, in Buddhism? How do you introduce the Buddha to them? Uh, so in a nutshell, I explain that the, the, the story of the historical Buddha is a story of somebody um, encountering discontent in life, going through life, hitting a moment where they realize, wait a second, this isn't what I thought it was and having to question life. And that's represented in the story of the Buddha where, uh, you know, he's, according to the story, he's, he's a prince who lives in a, a palace and he's shielded from all of these things that happen in the world, like sickness and old age and death. But um, because of his wealth and privilege as a, as a prince. Right. And his, his dad wanted him to be, a ruler. And, you know, according to the story, there was this uh, prophecy that was told when he was born that was that he'll either be a great king or he'll be a great sage. And his dad was like, well, I don't want him to be a sage. I want him to be the ruler over this, over my kingdom. So he tried to shield him from suffering to prevent him from ever going down that route of becoming a monastic or a sage. And it backfired because the more he shielded him from from the suffering in the world, uh, the more acute the uh, experience was when he did encounter it. And then according to the story, that's exactly what happened. He leaves the palace one day and he sees sickness and he sees a corpse and he sees uh, an old person and he's really hit hard by um, the the harsh reality of of life, which is that we, we get sick, we can't help it. We get old, we can't stop it and we die. (laughs) And, he encountered a monk as well. And he saw serenity in the face of that monk. And that gave him the hope that maybe he could come to peace with the condition of life. And he chose to go down that route and he, he left the palace behind and became a wandering monk and, um, and spent six years out there uh, living very harsh ascetic practices, like not eating a lot or, um, uh, to the point where he realized, okay, at one point I had everything and it 
I, I wasn't happy. Then I gave up everything and I'm still here not happy with the condition of life. So then he goes and he meditates and he achieves enlightenment and discovers there's this middle way. Uh, it's not about having everything, but it's also not about getting rid of everything that you can find contentment in the middle path, the middle way. And then goes on to start teaching that to others. And, and that's kind of the origins of Buddhism in a, in a very small nutshell. Yeah. So I, I, I noticed that when I asked you about the historical Buddha, you were very careful to talk about the story of, of Buddha and mentioned story several times. So um, can you explain that? Why, why is it that you focus on the story rather than saying, yeah, this is a definitely historical guy and all these things happened to him? <laughs> yeah, I, I emphasize that because first of all, this is a story that supposedly took place like 2,500 years ago, right? Uh, roughly 500 BC. About the same time that Lehi was leaving Jerusalem. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Or the story of Lehi leaving Jerusalem, we'll say it that way. Exactly. <laughs> so, and it wasn't written down till probably the second or third century BCE. So you've got uh, a considerable amount of time uh, between when this happened and then people start talking about what happened. You'll encounter this in almost all of the major traditions, right? You've got this old story where some teaching comes out of it. And with time, you develop these stories that are the teachings about the teaching. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about the Buddha and his teachings, I, I like to emphasize that all we know is that somebody said that this happened and they said right. it a long time <laughs> yeah. after it happened. Yeah. Yeah. So whether or not it happened, we don't know. And, and it's human nature to embellish stories for the point of, of, of teaching something. Mm -hmm. So I am, uh, I'm absolutely convinced that the stories of the Buddha are embellished. Uh, some of them have probably reached the point where they're probably fabricated just to get a point across. But this is something I really like about Buddhism is that the story, the, the historical account of the Buddha is uh, for most purposes, it's irrelevant what we get out of it is some kind of a practical teaching that does apply to our day-to-day -day lives. But if we were to find out, oh yeah, somebody invented this whole story. There was never an actual guy named Buddha. It has no bearing on the teaching. Um, so I emphasize when I'm talking about these stories is that they're stories. They may yeah. be true. They may not. I think from my perspective, most of them may not be true and that's okay. In the same way that if we were to discover today hey, mate, there wasn't an Einstein. Uh, th that guy was never real. But this guy who, who did, uh, d you know, took the story to try to emphasize the importance of, uh, of uh, you know, the theory of relativity. Well, the teaching holds its own. You don't need the historical account to be true or not. And I think that's absolutely the case with the Buddha, whether there was a historical figure who, who went through all these things, um, doesn't really matter. What do we get out of it? Um, some incredible ways of thinking about life that uh, don't matter whether there was an actual person who did that. What, was, was that something that was easy for you to accept as you started studying Buddhism? Um, and the reason I ask is because I, I, I have these conversations. I don't know if you know or not, but my background is in folklore. I studied folklore and I understand all about oral tradition and everything you're talking about. It really I don't have any problem with it. It just makes sense. Um, but I talk with a lot of people who will say, well, if, 
if this didn't actually happen, then it's just bullshit. And I'm not going to believe it. And why would I believe anything that there can't be anything valuable that comes out of a fiction or something that isn't true. And, and I, I think the, the way that we are conditioned being raised as uh, members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there's such an emphasis on the literal truthfulness of all of these stories and these people and everything that happened. And part of a significant part of a lot of people's faith crisis is when then they, when they recognize, Oh, these stories that I was told that were true and they're not true. And so now I don't know what to believe. Did, did you, did, did you have to go from that point of literal truth this is the only truth to, Oh, I can find value in a fiction or was that something that was kind of natural to you? Uh, I think a little bit of both. Um, I recognized going into this, the value of stories. I remember the first time it occurred to me that I can extract value from the story of, of Aesop's fables, the tortoise and the hare, right. While recognizing that there was probably never a tortoise and a hare that were actually racing. Um, but the, probably not, probably, probably not. (laughs) But the important thing there is nobody's ever tried to sell me on that and say that there really was. Yeah. Um, so I, I've always kind of had that in mind, and I realized early on that in Buddhism, when a lot of these things are being told, the very teachers that are talking about them do emphasize, kind of like I did, that, hey, according to this story, and then they'll share. And um, when I started working with um, a specific teacher to learn more about Buddhism, uh, he was sharing one of the old stories of, I don't even remember what it was, but it was something kind of difficult to believe. And I remember asking him, I said, well, wait a second. Is that, I said, is that true? And he laughed. He's like, what do you mean? Is that true? And I said, did that really happen? And he said, well, just because it happened, doesn't make it true. And just because it didn't happen, doesn't make it untrue. And I was like, well, wait a second. I don't, I don't understand your line of thought here. Yeah. Well, how are you defining true? Yeah. And he said, Truth is what we can extract out of a story. Truth isn't the story. The story, what you're looking for is, is what you're really asking me is, is this factual? Is, is this a fact? And he said, no, I would say, no, it's not a fact. And I was kind of taken aback because I, I thought, well, why would you share this story if it's not right. a fact? Yeah. And he said, because I'm trying to get you to understand a deeper truth that you can extract out of the story, but only you can extract that. That's on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not it's factual. He's like, no, none of this is, most of this isn't factual. And I was just blown away. It was the first time I had encountered someone who could be that open about saying, we don't know if any of this stuff is fact, Mm -hmm. but fact isn't what matters here. Truth is what matters. What, what rings true to you in the story? What do you extract out of it? Um, And ever since then I've, I've made uh, I think a, a strong effort to emphasize that when I'm, when I'm sharing a story, that's just a story. Um, but a lot of truth can come out of these stories. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I want to talk now about enlightenment um, because that's, that's really the, uh, the, the apex of the Buddha story. Um, you know, and, and if you kind of think about it as, as a Goldilocks, he tried this, it was too hot. He tried this, it was too cold. And then he found something that was just right. Yeah. And just right. It's called enlightenment. And Uh, and so like wondering what, what actually does that mean to find enlightenment? Um, And, 
this might complicate it a little bit more, but where I want to go with the question is, do, do you come across people who think that they're enlightened, but they're not really enlightened? And so then is there a standard by which you can determine enlightenment, <laughs> either for yourself or for other people, which I know it gets more complicated when you're starting to put it onto other people. Um, but, but let's just start with uh, enlightenment, if you can define what that is in, in the Buddhist sense. Yeah, uh, it is a tricky one because it's one of those, Buddhism is trying to emphasize that um, we make meaning of things. We develop concepts, we create labels, uh, and that's, that's a good thing, and, it's a, and we pay the price for it too. Because mm-hmm. the moment I define something, um, I expect that thing to conform to what I think that thing is. Enlightenment is is troublesome because of that. How do I define it? Um, in most Buddhist traditions, they'll say, well, you can't define it. And that makes this problematic because how do I, I'm, I'm aspiring for this thing that I can't define. Uh, and they'll say, well, it's because you have to experience it. And in the Zen tradition, they'll give you all kinds of stories to try to, to try to illustrate the, uh, impossibility of yeah the futility of even aspiring to it and my favorite one (laughs) is the story of a a novice monk who approaches his zen master and he says hey master i want to become enlightened he's like oh yeah i can do that no problem he's like okay well what do i have to do he's like well just bring me bring me a stone every day and when you bring the right stone you'll be i'll I'll teach you you'll be enlightened (laughs) he's like oh i can do that this this new guy starts bringing a stone every day and every day he gets the same answer. No, that's not the right one. (laughs) And and years go by. And one day years into this process, he brings a big stone and it's a heavy one. And, and of course the monastery is at the top of the hill, right. To add emphasis to the story. Sure. So he gets there at the top one day and he's been doing this for years, day in and day out. And he's got this big, heavy stone. He's like, is this one it? And just, you know, like every day the master looks, I was like, no, nope, that's not it. And he is just fed up. And he's like, you know what? And he drops this rock and he's like, this is stupid. There is no, there is no right stone. I'm not bringing any more stones. I'm done with this. And the master says, yep, that's the right answer. And in that moment, the guy becomes enlightened. Mm-hmm. And, and in what they're trying to convey in that Zen story is he finally gives up. He realizes, why do I, why am I doing this? Why am I suffering bringing these stupid rocks up this stupid hill to be told every day, no, that's not it. So he gives up the search. And in that moment, ironically or or paradoxically, he becomes awakened. He becomes enlightened. Um, I've always enjoyed that one because I feel like that resembles my quest of I was seeking the truth and I was seeking the truth and taking notes. And I would go to these seminars and I would listen to Buddhist teachers and I'm always taking copious notes, trying to figure it out, whatever it was. And it was one day, this concept of, of emptiness, that life is essentially empty and devoid of meaning until we come along and we paint meaning on it. Like it's a blank canvas and, and, and we're the painters. And I remember suddenly for the first time, it all, all the dots connected. And I realized I've been that that silly monk who carries the stone with me every day saying, is this it? No. Is this it? And I finally gave up and realized I don't, I don't care to find that anymore. I don't need to be enlightened. That, that was silly of me to even think I wanted to be enlightened. And ironically in that moment, I found that piece of, Oh, well, this must be what enlightenment feels like. I don't want to be enlightened. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I think that's what uh, Buddhism is trying to emphasize over and over and over in different stories and in different ways to people that the thing that you're seeking, you're not going to get it. And you can't get it because you want it. That's why you can't have it. The moment you don't want it, then you got it. And, and they'll, there's, like I said, so many stories try to push this. The other example that's a fun story is, you know, the, the monk who's out uh, trying to catch a fly. And like, and, and he tries and tries and tries. And after hours, he's exhausted and he sits down in the field and the fly comes and it lands on his nose. And they say, in that moment, he became enlightened. And that, again, that's what they're trying to convey. He gave up. He gave up the quest of trying to become enlightened. And that's the only time you can be enlightened. And I think there's, there's something powerful to that notion of enlightenment. It's like, as long as you want it, you can't have it. But the moment you realize you don't need it and you don't want it, that it's a stupid thing to even be looking after, that's when you are enlightened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, and I, 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 I've got two different thoughts on this. I want to get your, your take on, um, but, but they kind of stem from uh, things that I've heard Alan Watts say in, in some of his lectures. I've been listening to so many of them in the last couple of months that it, it, it's not so much. And, and this again is the way that I interpret it, that it's not so much that there's something wrong with um, wanting whatever enlightenment is, the, the error is in thinking that you don't already have it. You know, that, yeah. that there, there's something, there's something more that you have to have. And, and I think that manifests itself in this um, looking to authority figures, you know, so the guy that's carrying the stone up, I mean, he goes to this person that he just anoints by the very fact that he approaches him with this question and says, you have something that I don't have. And I want that. Please give it to me. Yeah. And the, the teacher's already thinking, oh, come on, you've already got it, but you're going to have to figure this out for yourself. So, okay, let me yeah. give you the unsolvable riddle um, until you can figure out for yourself. Uh, and and so, so it's that quest for validation that's outside of you. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's a, a, a big part of it. And when you get to a point where you're like, oh, wait a minute, I... I have everything that I need for validation of myself and I don't really need that outside stuff. That's the kind of giving up thing that then there's some peace in that. And that, so that's, that's the first kind of element of enlightenment that, that I'd, I'd like to hear a, your response on. And then the second one has to do with this, this concept of Maya or illusion. And I think you, you referred to it when you were saying that the meaning that we place on the world is meaning that we put, into the world. And that happens through our, our culture and our beliefs and, you know, all, all of these things that if you can recognize that all of this is a construct, it's all a fabrication. And the things that we think that are so real and so important are mainly that way because we say so. <laughs> and that, that's the culture that we live in. That's the life that we live in. And it is an illusion. And once you can recognize that and become comfortable with it. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have to become a complete aesthetic, you know, like in the Buddha story, I'm going to give up everything and just not engage, but then you can be a little bit more circumspect in the way that you engage with it and, and do it in ways that really serve you and serve others around you. So that, that element, I guess the way that I would summarize those two things is, is um, self love or self validation and then recognizing the illusion of life and culture. 
as, as yeah. the key elements of, of the undefinable <laughs> enlightenment. So what, what, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I agree completely. With, with the first point, um, you see this in the historical account of the Buddha. He, he goes on this quest and he's looking for answers and he, he goes from one teacher to another and he'll learn everything he can from that teacher until that teacher says, I don't have anything else to teach you. Um, you know, go out and, and, and find someone else. And he does that. He goes out and finds someone else and that teacher has new info and he does this. And at some point, uh, he stops looking for teachers and he goes and, and he just sits there and, and starts contemplating life from his own vantage point. And what you see in this, in this story is that's the moment of, of his awakening of his enlightenment is there were no more teachers to learn from. There's nothing else to learn. He had to sit with it and mm-hmm. he figures out at that moment that he's the source of it all. Yeah. He's the source of his, um, uh, angst. Yeah, his <laughs> angst. Uh, he's the source of the yearning to eliminate that angst. Like it's, yeah. it's all him. And I think sometimes we, we hear that story and then we think, oh, well, what did he figure out? I need to go figure out what he did. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's so, it's so there in our faces that we don't see it, that what it was is he figured out that it's just him and, and we can do the same. And I think that's kind of like, you know, when you're looking for your keys and you just can't find them anywhere and you're asking everyone. And at the end of the whole search, you realize, oh, they were in my pocket the whole time. Mm. And it's almost comical or, or your glasses. That's even more comical because they were literally on your head. On your forehead, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's kind of the, what he experienced. This thing he had been looking for was there all along, but nobody could tell him. Nobody can give that to you. You have to figure it out on your own. And ever since then, the, the method that he developed to, for his followers and for people to try to learn what he learned was, well, you go searching, but you're not going to find it out there. You'll never find it outside of yourself. And and the entire Buddhist practice is an inward quest where you start looking inward and you start seeing yourself and understanding you as the source of things. And if there's ever going to be something like a moment of enlightenment, it's going to be along those same lines of the, of the monk with the stone or the Buddha sitting under a tree meditating, realizing, ah, it's just me all along. It's just been here. What I'm looking for is here in the present moment and I'm the source of it. I think that kind of correlates to uh, the first thing that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, Another story that's talked about in in some Buddhist circles is the story of the Golden Buddha, which is this uh, story of a a statue of the Buddha that's made out of gold in in Thailand, I think, or somewhere. And and the monks that that have this in their monastery, um, the whole country is being chased away by an invading army. So these monks cover up the statue in uh, clay so that the invading army won't know that it's actually gold and they won't steal it but they do get chased off and they never come back. And then years go by and and new monks come and and take possession of the monastery. And there's this clay Buddha there that for years and years is known as a clay Buddha statue. And one day one of them's cleaning the statue and, and it breaks off a part of the clay and he discovers that it's gold under there. And, um, and I think what's trying to be conveyed again in that story is that the, that's essentially what Buddhism is trying to do is it's helping trying to help us uncover the gold Buddha within us that all along you 
you've never not been enlightened. You are enlightened. You are what you are. But what, what covers you, the clay that covers up the gold, these are concepts. These are, this is the, the conditioned mind, the beliefs that we acquire about ourselves or about life, about reality, prevent us from seeing that we are already inherently perfect the way that we are. So, so we play this game where we can't accept ourselves the way we are because we're always trying to compare how we are to how we think we should be. And that's a game that never ends because how we should be is evolving and changing. So you never get there, but then you, you drop out of the game when it, the clay cracks just enough to where you realize, Oh my gosh, under all of this conditioning and these ideas and, and self-limiting beliefs, there's just me, the me that I've always been. And that's the, the golden Buddha uh, statue. And that's another visual way to, think of this concept of enlightenment yeah that's interesting a, a, an element of that story that i like is the the reason that they covered the the statue in clay in the first place was motivated by fear you know they, mm-hmm. they they were they were worried that some harm was going to come to this thing that they thought was important yeah. Even if, even if, even if the statue had had been stolen and melted down, another goal, it you know it it's still just representing something, you know, so that you can you can take the clay, remove the clay, and then you've got the gold underneath. You can melt down the gold, and then there's just emptiness inside of it. But it still doesn't change what it is that those things were were representing, um, possibly. Um, I, I don't know if that's, that's a way that that story has ever been used, but that kind of jumped out to me. I, I also, I don't know if this fits or not, but I'm going to, I'm going to see what you think about this. I had this thought last night, so I haven't really thought it through very much, okay. but I, I've been, uh, asking myself these questions about infinity, you know, and, and is existence, uh, an, an infinite existence is is life and creation in the universe is this all really infinite or is there definitions that you know there is a limit to the universe there is that you know and if you go on the assumption that that the universe is expanding and so there really is no edge and planets are always being formed and dying and suns formed and dying and galaxies and solar systems and then this thing just kind of goes on and on and on and on infinitely we get born into this world um, as whatever we are, as we're babies, whatever our mind is like as we're children, as we're infants. And we get conditioned, as you were talking about, this is kind of like the clay being put over the, the gold statue. We get conditioned to see the world in certain ways. And if it really is an infinite existence, we get conditioned very early on to think of it in finite ways. And I, I think that's because of the limits of what we're able to perceive with our five senses. But, you know, you think about fractions, one fifth, you know, um, two fourths, you know, something which is, which is a half, but, but, you know, like that only works if there's a finite number to draw, you know, like a portion of it. And so we, I, I think about like my own daughter right now, Zoe, uh, who's nine and she's struggling with these concepts of, of math. And it just makes me wonder it, are, are we trying to force this idea of a finite world onto this mind that came into this world without any sense of finite because it's actually an infinite part of nature and it's just this culture that's enforcing um, finite stuff on it. What do you think about that? <laughs> um, I, I really like that line of thought. Yeah. 
Um, I think about that often with words, you know, I, I can yeah. only think in the context of the words that I have in my mind, all of which are inherited. Yes. Um, but I can't explain a feeling that doesn't, that can't be defined by one of the words that's already in my head. And I thought, well, what if there, what if there are feelings or emotions out there that we can't define just because we don't have a word for it yet. Uh, and then that puts me in this train of thought where, wow, I can only experience my interaction with, with life or with the universe only makes sense in the context of how I can define it based on the words that were already given to me, inherited, that have fortunately expanded, you know, in the however many uh, thousands of years we've, we've uh, our vocabulary has been added upon and, and clarified a bit. But still, it's finite in the sense that I can only think using the words that I have in my mind. Right. And that's kind of a, that's a fascinating thought experiment. What if I didn't have any words? What if I was never given any words? How would I experience life? Would it be more limited? Uh, would it be unlimited? Um, I don't know. And, and there are some podcasts that talk about it that are really fun. Like uh, there's one about Helen Keller and her inability to communicate and what life was like up until that moment where she, had a way to communicate and had words that she could use to express what she was feeling. And that's a, it's just a fascinating concept, the idea of words. But like you said, with numbers, um, with what science tells us, uh, with the nature of the universe, whether it's, uh, you know, expanding, it's like in any of these things, we can get out to as far as we can imagine. And then we confront the same thing, uncertainty, yeah. You know, science can get us so far, but then, right. then what, what was before the big bang? If you don't believe in the big bang, okay, there was God. Well, but what was there before that? Like you still run into the same problem in any, in any of these explanations of reality, we just get to a point where we don't know, we don't know anymore. And, and I would venture to say we, maybe there's no, we're not even capable of knowing, even if there was an answer. Right. Right. Which is kind of where I've landed with it. I mean, I think that our, our, our ability to perceive reality is so limited by the five senses that have evolved at this point in our species evolution, you know, and, <laughs> you know, science does a great job of showing us the things that we're able to know, but the more you get, the more questions you have. And, and it kind of goes back to one of the first things that you said when we started talking that it became less to you about finding the answer or the truth and more about um, kind of celebrating the questions and finding the reasons for the questions and the meaning behind the questions. And um, yeah, I, I, I like what you said about words and the way that, that words really influence uh, the way that we perceive our reality. It's, it's, you know, like if you pour water into the form of a, a cup or a mug or, you know, something like that, the water's going to take that shape while it's in that container. And that's what all these words are yeah. and, and beliefs. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it extends from words, um, you know, so many of the traditions that we have, and I, th this is when the geeky folklorist in me starts coming out. <laughs> it's, it, it's the way that we, we shape and form the world around us. And so we think, well, that's what the world is, but it's actually, um, and, and that's, that's what I mean when, when I talk about that Maya or illusion that, that we're the ones that have made it the way that it is. Um, and then you get, get that reinforced with group consensus and, you know, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> interesting tangent. Yeah. 
Okay. And, and that, that it actually leads to kind of the next point that I wanted to talk about, something that you said in, in the book, that we become prisoners of our own minds and we're bound by our beliefs, our perceptions, and our ideas. Um, what, well, what do you want to say about that? Using words, again, as the example here, I, I think about this a lot with the idea of bad words. You know, I've got three little ones at home and, and, and that we're playing that game where sometimes they'll come home and they've got a new word and say, Oh no, we don't, don't say that word. Well, I heard, I heard it on the show or I saw it on YouTube. Um, but it's gotten me into this thinking of, uh, words are the perfect explanation of, of a, a, a cognitive prison. The moment we decide, Oh, this word, this one's a bad word. We don't say that. Um, now we're trapped by the rule that we gave ourselves and, and what makes it stick in place is the, the collective belief. You know, society now has adopted this idea. First, it started with a person, right? Someone decided that word, that's bad. And, and that person told everyone else, don't say that word, that's a bad word. Everyone believed that story or that idea. And now we're all trapped by it. Now we can't say that word because that one is bad. That's the perfect example of an idea that we all hold uh, as a truth, and now we're all trapped by it. We can't say it. Why? Because it's bad. Well, what makes it bad? That we all think it's bad. But the only way to change that is to convince everyone at the same time that it's no longer bad. Uh, how's that ever going to happen? And I think we have a lot of ideas like that, that we become trapped by them, and they produce a tremendous amount of suffering for us. And it's just a conceptual truth. It's only true because we believe that it's true. And it's, it's the belief. Uh, that's the key word there. I think that's what makes it so real. And um, another example of this is like in our Western society, we have these images of how you should look. This is a, you know, an attractive body, a slender one or, or certain amount of curves or, and you get people um, experiencing tremendous amount of suffering over a conceptual truth. I should look this way. I'm going to go do this surgery. I'm going to fix my nose or I'm going to, uh, you know, whatever it is to try to um, make myself look right. But again, there's no truth behind it other than the collective belief that that's how it is. And, and those are the type of uh, prisons that we all find ourselves in all the time in ways that we rarely think about. And I think that's one of the things that Buddhism is trying to help us to uncover, again, using the analogy of the clay Buddha. Like the, the clay is the conditioning, the idea or the belief that has me blinded from experiencing contentment. Because here I am comparing how I am to how I think I should be. And the whole idea of how I should be could just be a conceptual truth that I've inherited from words and from society. And there's really nothing else to it other than well, I believe that I should be this way. So until I'm this way, I'm not happy. Here I am sitting miserably because I'm not uh, mindful enough or I'm not kind enough or I'm not whatever it is that uh, there's no truth to it. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. I think it does, Noah. And I'm going to end part one of my discussion with Noah right here. But before signing off completely on part one, I want to leave you with two more clips to hopefully illustrate at least one element of what Noah was talking about here. 
The first will be another clip from Alan Watts, and the second will be a scene from season three of the TV show Billions. Uh, Both have to do with this struggle that Noah was talking about between who I think I am and who I think I should be. So let me set up these clips for you. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll know that Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, has had a tremendous impact on the way that I currently view the world. Now, one of the metaphors that Haidt uses in his book is the elephant and the rider. The elephant, if you remember, is the emotional response that we have to things, whether we feel anger, hatred, disgust, or it's an attraction and an affinity that we just don't really understand. Any and all of these feelings come from our superconscious brains instead of subconscious. Let's let's call it superconscious. That part of our brain that links memory with meaning in ways that we're really not consciously aware of. Now those feelings come first. And then we try to understand them and explain them by creating these post hoc narratives. That's the writer. And the writer is there to serve the elephant uh, to serve the elephant to possibly guide it, maybe, but the freaking elephant is strong and it's going to do its thing. And part of what I'm hearing Noah say is that too often we think that our feelings and our instincts are wrong. We think that they're not what they should be. And so we fight them, we reject them, and this creates a constant struggle between the elephant and the rider, between these two elements of ourself, and that struggle can lead to unnecessary suffering. But those feelings that we're feeling and struggling against, that's nature's way of telling us things. Our biology has evolved to respond in certain ways, and that's evidenced, possibly, in our feelings and instincts. So in that sense, whatever biological response we have to the various stimuli in our environment around us, is our evolved biology doing what it has evolved to do. So when Noah talks about this struggle between how I am and how I should be, I think that in part he's talking about this struggle between writer and elephant, and my new best friend Alan Watts has some very interesting and provocative things to say about that. And then the clip from Billions, which will follow it, I think will be self-explanatory. Everything that happens is in some way harmonious, is in some way right, is in some way an integral part of the universe. There are no wrong feelings. There may be wrong actions, actions contrary to the rules of human communication. But the way you feel towards other people, loving, hating, etc., etc., there aren't any wrong feelings. And so to try and force one's feelings to be other than what they are is absurd and furthermore dishonest. But you see, the the idea that there are no wrong feelings is an immensely threatening idea to people who are afraid to feel in any case. And this is one of the peculiar problems of our culture, that we are terrified of our feelings because they, they take off on their own and we think that if we give them any scope and if we don't immediately beat them down they will lead us into all kinds of chaotic and destructive action. 
It's so funny that we in our Western culture today say that kind of thing. We who do more chaotic and reckless kind of action than anybody ever did. But if for a change we would allow our feelings and look upon their comings and goings as something as beautiful and as natural and necessary as changes in the weather, the going of night and day, and of the four seasons. We would be at peace with ourselves. Because what is problematic for Western man is not so much his struggles with other people and their needs and their problems as his struggle with his own feelings with what he will allow himself to feel and what he won't allow himself to feel. He's ashamed to feel really profoundly sad. So much so that he could cry. It is not manly to cry. He is ashamed to loathe somebody because you are not supposed to hate people. He is ashamed to be so overcome with the beauty of something, whether it be a natural landscape or a member of the opposite sex, that he goes out of his mind with this beauty because all that kind of thing is not being in control old boy not kind of having your hand on the wheel <laughs> but it is because you see we don't go with that that we are not in control that we try to pretend that our inner life is different so I think this is the most releasing thing that anybody can possibly understand that your inner feeling is never wrong that's to say what you feel it's never wrong that you feel that way it may not be a right guide to what you should do in other words if you feel that you hate someone intensely it isn't necessarily the right way of dealing with that feeling to go out and cut his throat but it is right that you should have the feeling of hating or of being sad or of what frightened terrified whatever it is for you see when a person comes to himself he comes to be one with his own feeling and that is the only way of being in a position to control it it is in exactly this way that uh, the sailor always keeps the wind in his sails whether he wants to sail with the wind or whether he wants to sail against the wind, he always uses the wind. He never denies the wind. Well, in it's exactly that same sense that a person has to keep going with his own feeling. Whether he wants to act as the feeling obviously suggests or act in a different way, he has to keep the feeling with him because that's his own essential self. But when he attempts simply to sail against the wind, he's lost himself. He's become just a kind of empty uh, mask which hasn't got any real life behind it. And all its protestations of love and goodwill are hollow. So you see, it is in the most basic, simple situation. A mother has a child. She got it by accident. You know? And uh, she thinks, oh heavens, now I'm all tied up, full of responsibility and so on, I can't stand it. So I really didn't want to have it and I 
Oh, 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 no, I mustn't think that thought. <laughs> All good mothers naturally love their babies. And so when she gets the baby, she says, Darling, I love you, but her milk is sour. <laughs> and the baby gets the other message. <laughs> and the baby's mixed up. And it would be much better if that mother said to the baby, Listen, you're a pest and you're a nuisance. And I didn't want to have you around. Well, then they understand each other. <laughs> and everything's clear. There's no confusion. There's nothing mixed up here. But when it comes to dealing with other human beings, we have to steer from instinct. I don't trust instinct. That's because you're defining it in some woo-woo spiritual way. Don't. Instead, think of your gut as the deepest part of you, the part that can do internal calculations on the highest plane, acts at his best, does this. You want to be on his level in the purest way, the most profound, then you must too. Identify it, separate it from your fears, your hopes, the other voices in your head, because if you don't cultivate instinct and listen to it, you're fucking doomed. When I was in school for some time, when I came across the sign saying, Who are you and where are you from? We don't like business cards. Hi, this is Greg from Utah County, and I work with chemical weapons while I listen to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com, and if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. And hey, while you're at it, why not go over to Patreon and support Infants on Thrones there, where for as little as $1 per episode to whatever monthly budget you set, you can say, thanks, Infants, for putting out this great content. It's really important to me. I'd love you to keep doing it and spend your time doing it and dedicate. I'll, I will I will support you on Patreon. Why not do that? That sounds like a good idea. Why not do that? Anyone for the closing prayer? Sometimes when I came across the sun saying who are you and where are you from? We don't like places come along with us, not to say at least that's what we no twist past yeah, my ass wait below me. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Wait.